0: Tonight, we're very pleased to present a panel of four people, each of whom played a key role in the development of Pacific Visions. This is the first major expansion that we've had in the history of the aquarium, and it represents a very significant departure from what normally an aquarium would do in an expansion. We'll get to that in a minute. Peter Kariva, right to, to my left, He's the distinguished professor and director of the Institute for the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. He's a distinguished professor. Before going to UCLA, he was vice president of the Nature Conservancy and chief scientist. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and of the National Academy of Sciences. To Peter's left is Joe Cortina. Joe Cortina is president of Cortina Productions. They're the media company that partnered with us on the film here, and all the interactives and the media throughout this new wing. Joe worked with us previously on a couple of our exhibits, on one called Whales, Voices in the Sea, which is an interactive exhibit, and also he worked with us on three science on a sphere experiences. They've done some major museums, uh, and Presidential Libraries and Cortina Productions has won all the awards that are available in this field. Muse Awards, the uh, themed entertainment awards. And next to Joe is Duncan Belash. Duncan is the president and principal of EHDD Architects. They designed the original building and they designed this building. He's been the president at EHDD for 14 years, and over that 10-year, ten they have one, they have designed and constructed more zero energy buildings, net zero energy buildings, and more lead platinum buildings than any architectural firm in all of North America. His work has... has <laughs> His work has earned the National American Institute of Architects honor award for design. And last, but certainly not least, is Farah Khadr. She's the aquarium's director of Pacific Visions and architecture, and she served as the project manager of Pacific Visions since it began. She's been with the aquarium since 2004 and worked on the Ocean Science Center, Water, our water future, and a number of other things. She holds a degree in architecture and also an MBA. Please join me in welcoming our panel. So Pacific Visions represents the first major expansion of this aquarium since it opened in 1998. And it took a bold, unconventional path for expansion. This wing isn't dedicated to bigger tanks with bigger animals. It's devoted to the one animal that's putting all the other animals on this planet at risk. It's about us. And let me give just a little bit of context. The time is January of 2005. The board is having a retreat. And they're talking about expansion because they've known for some time we needed to expand because of overcrowding. There were three competing proposals, and the least well-developed of them was Pacific Visions. It really was early on, but the board decided after vigorous debate, they wanted to go with Pacific Visions. It was about the changing relationship of people with the Earth and what it would take to make that relationship sustainable. And the, the, it has made all the difference. The first, the first challenge was to develop the scientific storylines. So remember now, this was 14 years ago. We started using our weekly lecture series, our aquatic academy, our aquatic forums, bringing in experts from all over the world on a range of topics, all of which were related in one way or another to this theme. And after we amassed two notebooks with about this thick, we decided it was now time to bring in four outstanding scientists and look for the golden threads that could tie this story together. And those were Peter Kariva, whom you've already met this evening, from UCLA, Doug McCauley from UC Santa Barbara, Augustin Fuentes from Notre Dame, and Anthony Bernaski from Stanford. We spent two intensive days discussing, debating, about what the drivers of this change were, how to reduce the stressors. And it was really an exciting enlightening process that was rich in creative abrasion as ideas collided. And so 14 years after that retreat, if you, unless you've been living in a cave where you don't have any TV or internet or radio or newspapers, you know about the UN report that came out last week that talks about extinction and the fact that we could lose a million species by the end of this this century. There's not a conclusion or a finding in that report that isn't dealt with in this wing. That says a lot about the experts that we relied upon. And so Peter, you're one of the world's outstanding ecologists. I love something about you. You challenge everybody's ideas, including your own. That's what great scientists do, because science has never settled for, for very long. Give us your reaction about the process and the output that you see this evening.
1: Sure. Well, um, first if you know, I've known and worked with Jerry for a long time, and one of the things is bringing together four scientists who had never met each other. So we had never met each other if you gave us a multiple choice test and it had a b c and d and every question we would have had a different answer <laughs> i mean with certainty of every question right. and yet it's kind of like the wizard of oz or something or uh the magic of um, he calls it the abrasion of ideas it's also good humor yes and a lot of good humor in what comes out of when you have four scientists who care about the same thing, shared values, but totally divergent ideas. Yeah. Uh, yet we found some common threads, and that's almost never accomplished. It's, you know, I've been in science for decades, and you don't see that. And I actually attribute that to Jerry. Well, Thank you. Huh. It's pretty remarkable. The second thing that was that, that was really interesting, and I know you're going to see that when you see the film is when you started with that that report, that report about extinction. But for that whole time we spent there, there's two things going on. Um, One is this this sense of crisis, existential risk, you know, climate change. This past year, emissions went up more than they ever have before. So at a time when we should be putting our foot on the brakes, we're accelerating. So we had that fact in front of us. And then Jerry's one of the few people that can hold that firmly in his head and also hold firmly in his head that you should never underestimate human ingenuity and that there's ways forward. We, we, you, know, you tend to categorize people as pessimists or optimists. It's not binary. There's not many people... Yeah. That can, in no way, be naive and recognize the depth of challenges, and not be Pollyannish, and yet also examine the the. It's just, it's just you don't see those juxtaposed in the uh, environmental movement or in environmental science that often, and, and that's what really struck me. It wasn't it, it emerged. It was like an emergent property um, of the of the discussion and. I mean, I think it's the emerging pro- property we need. It was, it was amazing. It was, it, was a, it was a blast. When you're a scientist, you're a scientist partly to have fun.
2: I know that's not our stereotype, <laughs> but
1: it's true. We're not good at parties, but we do have fun doing science. <laughs> and there's nobody more fun to do science with than Jerry. Yeah. So that was my well, question.
0: We, it was a great process. And, and we've got, gotten great advice all along the way, Peter. But when we came out of that two days, it was still largely science-speak. We had to engage someone that could translate these stories into experiences that would engage the public, that would entertain them, that would educate them and empower them. And we turned to Joe Cortina and Cortina Productions because of the remarkable record you've had, doing everything from presidential libraries to uh, the National Basketball Hall of Fame, to the College Football Hall of Fame, and humor plays a big role in what you do. Give us your impressions, Joe.
3: Well, when I attended, I was a fly on the wall at the meeting with the scientists and uh, was fascinated. And one of the things that they kept um, letting me know that it was okay to tell this story and not make it uh, a bummer. And so that's what I was, you know, my fear initially, because I know what Jerry's goals were, and he wanted the audience to understand that the future could be positive, and there's technologies and ideas, and with innovation and creativity, we could create a great future. And so my goal was to take that science and then translate that into something that the audience could appreciate and enjoy, and uh, you know so much about the future in pop culture is you know post-apocalyptic movies, or on the news you know the planet in crisis, and so it was how do we take this and make this something that will work for an audience and make them feel like they've been empowered, and so it was really to, to really focus it to a young audience. With the idea of designing the future, you know, Jerry threw out a quote in that meeting of that we're going to create the future whether we want to or not, and whether we do it deliberately or whether we do it just accidentally. So the idea was to try to translate that science into something that a younger audience could feel. And so we talked about getting a young host, and uh, and so that the younger audience could relate to them and talk about ideas that are with, you know, feasible and within their lifetime. And uh, so we really tried to make the, both the language accessible and also the imagery fun and the science true.
0: And so now we have the science, we have the experiences, we have the stories. We have to design a building that will capture these and be designed from the inside out to be sensitive to what the visitor wants but also have an envelope that will be exciting, inspirational. And so we turned to EHDD, and Duncan, say a word about how you went about designing this building.
4: Well, Jerry, uh, even though we designed buildings from the inside out, I'm going I'm to start with the outside, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. because, it was, because it was a big challenge. One of the things that was clear from the beginning is Jerry saw uh, Pacific Visions eventually becoming the first experience when you came to the Aquarium of the, experience, uh, Aquarium of the Pacific to give you a context uh, for the rest of the exhibits that you'll be seeing. And so uh, I was, we were left with putting what wanted to be a black box, a, a windowless map, building mass right at the front. Of the Of the aquarium, and it, we felt that it, it wanted to tie to the original architecture uh, uh, the original aquarium building, but also have uh, its own sense of identity and uh, a sense of wonder that uh, promised something interesting inside and so we, we decided to um, Follow the original metaphor uh, of of the aquarium, which was water, where the um, the architecture uh, of the first building um, related to the exhibit content, which was mainly marine life along the coast, and so it was coastal breakers. The con- a lot of the content and opportunity uh, with this project is to show large marine uh, mammals out in the open oceans, and so. A lot of the content will relate to the deep oceans. Um, so we went with that metaphor, and after many iterations, uh, some of them very frustrating, not quite finding what the right idea was, we came up with this biomorphic form that we tried to evoke um, the, the visual uh, experience of the deep ocean. And so we came up with. Three terms to describe uh, our, our goals for this: uh, transparency, uh, depth, and luminosity. And in order to do that, we had to create uh, very unique uh, glazing systems that, that took multiple iterations to figure out how to get how to get that. Um, that, that experience. We we took reflections out of the glass so that you're not seeing the palm trees or ca- cars driving by. Uh, we, uh, we worked with our facade uh, consultant to figure out the panelization in order to get the form uh, to be the elegant shape that we had hoped for. And that took many, 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 many iterations. Going inside the building, um, it was a lot of really practical design problems. Uh, the first one was we needed to create a series of spaces that worked um, in a way uh, that would allow the, um, the, sequen- the the timing of the experience, which is four turnovers per hour, to work and to work comfortably uh, for the audience, such that each, each space you felt there was something to experience. It was, it was, an, it was, a, it was a good opportunity to, to learn and, and have, have a good experience as you, move, as you move through it. And then the last big challenge that I can think of was the acoustics. There are spaces within Pacific Visions that want to have a more tranquil feel. Uh, the art gallery, uh, there's spaces that you want to fill with powerful audio that's rich and, and clear. There needed to be a separation uh, between the sound in this theater and, and the pre-show and the, and the after, after show. And then in this, if, this space itself had a lot of demands. Uh, Jerry's vision was for it not only to, uh, to be a theater for film, but uh, to be able to have a, um, an opportunity like this where you, where you have live uh, speakers or even live music, and all of those things have different acoustical uh, requirements. So to create that flexibility, so that it works in, in uh, to achieve all those things, was a big challenge for our acoustical designer and as architects working with the different materials.
0: And it had to be designed to be the functional equivalent of a black box theater, because the story is changing very rapidly, and we have to be able to change that story. Say just a word about how that influenced the architecture. And then, Joe, say a a word about that. You will turn over the the software to us so we will be able to update these stories. But what about the flexibility in in the black box theater concept?
4: Well, I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting about this as an exhibit is since the content um, is is audio, is audio and visual, there's an opportunity for it to be dynamic, to always be creating new content. So when you come to the Aquarium of the Pacific, you'll be seeing something new that, the, that what's happening out in the world, the latest news, the latest issues can, can be brought to you in a, in a very, uh, uh, very instantaneous way. And I think that's the opportunity uh, that this space and, um, and, the, and the designs that, that Joe has done, the, the exhibits, allow for.
3: But I think one of the, one of the, this is an extremely unique theater, and not only um, the screen, which you can see is massive, it's 130 feet by 32 feet high, and it's uh, three four, large 4K uh, laser projectors, so the resolution across that screen is the equivalent of 9K. You've probably heard of 4K TVs. The screen is 9K, so it's extremely detailed. very, very versatile. Um, This stage rises up. There's, um, uh, as you can see, they've got broadcast cameras in here now. That's all integrated. There's effects integrated into the theater, scent, uh, fog, wind. Um, There's uh, butt kickers under your seats, and that's actually (laughs) the brand name. And it's a speaker that's below human hearing. So when you put a signal into it, it just rumbles the seat. And we'll show you that a little bit later. (laughs) Um, But so we really created a space that could be used. And Aquarium of the Pacific is one of the most unique Um, uh, places that we've ever worked in that their in-house capabilities and their team to be able to create things. You know, they have the science on a sphere here in one of the other galleries and they've made you know, close to 15 of their own shows. So one of the things that was really important to build into this theater was the ability for the aquarium to use this in unique ways and to have the theater evolve and have the content evolve and stay current. So that was one of the things that we really wanted to build in. So it's a quite going to be quite an amazing venue, and I think the, um, Long Beach is going to be thrilled with the things that Jerry and his team come up with. And
0: and Peter, I'm gonna come back to you in a minute because the the scientific breakthroughs and advances come out of universities and research institutions, not out of aquariums. But I think you guys need platforms to tell these stories to the public, not only to keep the public informed, but also to keep the the public support for research over the long term. I'm gonna come back to you on that, to say a few words, but Faria, so you were the project director. You, you, and John Rouse were working with these and other, other creative people since the beginning. Big egos. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a little bit like it, it, it's a little bit like being the coach of an NBA team if you had Shaquille O'Neal, Magic Johnson, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, and Kevin Durant all on the same team, and you've only got one ball. How did you orchestrate that?
2: (laughs) You had, well, you know, to be honest, it was actually very easy. It was, I think, one of the best things about this project was the team that we had, and um, it included, you know, we worked with so many different people on this project. Probably, I think I was counting the other day, and there was about 60 uh, consultants and subcontractors that we worked with, and that doesn't include the, you know, subs of the subs. Um, but uh, it was just, it was a great team that we had. And I think that made the process just easier and, and you know better than I could have envisioned.
0: And I think great teams are willing to, to share the leadership. So when we were talking about the science, the scientists, they had the, the lead role. When it was talking about exhibits, Joe and, and the exhibit designers had the lead. And on, and on the architecture, I think that's what made it great. But I think you also did a wonderful job of well, being <laughs> the captain of this team.
2: Well, thank you very much. But, um, you know, I, every department of the yes. aquarium was involved. So, um, you know, what a lot of people don't realize, too, is we had all these great consultants, but we also had so many departments within the aquarium also working working um, for the project, especially during installation. Um, so, you know, big kudos goes to development, marketing, facilities, husbandry, life support, everybody.
0: Everybody was on, that, yeah. on the team. But, you know, the, this, the success of this, th- this is a building, it's a structure, it's a platform. The success is going to de- be determined by how successful we are at bringing important, engaging, relevant stories to the public. So Peter, much of the science we're going to rely on on people like you. Are you reliable? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: Just call me <him> Shaq. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: you, um, you know, I mean, I've taught at like fifteen universities. You know, I've had all. You these couldn't other keep jobs. a job.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> uh, um, if you watch people when they experience a museum or a place like this it's totally different than sitting in a college lecture yes. because they control the experience they're part of the experience they I, I, I think i mentioned to you once before when i first showed up at ucla I, I i i teach a number of classes but i there was this group of kids and their fondest memory of getting involved in the environment was coming to the aquarium and that happens at places like this and so And look at the demographics out there. I mean, the demographics, and it's not just young people because, uh, you know, it used to be 100 years ago one out of 10 people made it to 65, now eight out of 10. So the the richness of the audience you have here is unlike any other place. I'm hoping that the scientific community recognizes that this is every bit as important as peer review Scientific journal articles. Right. I'm hoping that they will, because if they will recognize it, um, this is transformative.
0: So then that means that guys like you are positioned to lead an institute. When it comes time for promotion and tenure, you have to be willing. <laughs> you have to be willing to acknowledge this is an important part of our of
1: our business. And and every you know every major university now has science communication but they do it in a boring way. Yes. This is exciting.
0: right? Well, I think you know, there's a big move to make, make <laughs> scientists be able to communicate more effectively. And I think that's not bad, but I think a, a more effective way is for scientists to form partnerships right. with science centers, museums,
1: aquariums, and so on. And right. Yeah. Some people should teach. Some people should do research. Some people should make films and demonstrations. Very few people should do all three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's right. So the, uh,
0: the rate of change, what's happening, that's one of the scary things. Nature can't keep up. And if you look at that UN report, the biggest problem is the, the degradation, uh, fragmentation, destruction of habitat. And they point out in, the, in that that something like 75% of the, the land has been modified by humans and two-thirds of, of the ocean. So we have to be thinking about strategies on food, energy, and water that's going to save more space for nature. And, and you will experience some of that both in, in the film and in the culmination gallery. The, uh, one of the things that we're hoping is that after people go through this, they will go back into the original aquarium, and they will look at those animals in a very different way. And they will understand at a deep, visceral level that our fates are tied very tightly and intimately to what happens to all of those animals that we have on display. Because biodiversity is not just something nice. It provides stable, productive ecosystems that provide ecosystem services. And uh, so that's one of the the takeaways that we want. How about if we get a a comment from from each of you, what would you like to see the stories t- be, that we would tell next, or how we would go about telling those stories? Peter, any thoughts?
1: Well, um, it was in our original discussion, I'm sure you remember that and Augustine really um, pushed this, I remember, is this, is this uh, we're all connected to the oceans. You know, I take field trips. You could take kids to a grassland, and most of them will like it. Some will Take them to a forest. Uh, I get claustrophobic in forests. I've never taken a class to the coast, and everybody didn't smile. Yeah. And and so I and I know that this film does it, but, but just reinforcing that connection, that primordial connection, but also economic connection and opportunity for innovation connection. That that's something that. This is uniquely able to do, and the second thing I, I think, the last thing, and I know this is in there as well, and you and I were talking at at dinner. There's so much new science going on. Those the corals, you know, everybody's heard about coral bleaching and the hot water. Well, there are laboratories all around the world discovering ways around that, right. and and it's it's not just about people being stupid and greedy. It's also about people. Uh, being very ingenious yeah. and generous.
0: We, we have the capacity and the technology and the knowledge to really create a good Anthropocene, a good future. Yep. And you make that, that point.
3: Yep. And that, that for me was eye-opening, that once we started to do a, delve into the science and, and work with you, you, realize that so much of the uh, ideas and the potential is already there, that so much technology is just on the verge. So many ideas are so creative and so innovative that it's not far off. And so the idea of collaboration and uh, positive outlook is so important for, to let those ideas um, emerge that you know, it's not all um, gloom. Well, it
0: certainly is not.
3: Duncan, you want to add a word?
4: Yeah, I, to me, I think one of the great opportunities of, uh, of this new wing is, is this theater, uh, and to uh, utilize it as an amazing asset beyond just an exhibit. I, I think uh, tonight's is, is a good example of how you can use, use this space uh, with technology that's so far beyond any space like it that you would find anywhere where you have 300 seats, you have, you have the, the media. And uh, to allow it as a forum for dialogue about these important issues, and to be able to take advantage of the media uh, and to uh, the, uh, the location within the aquarium and, and, and all these issues, to, to draw in people and to do programs uh, that, really, uh, that really tackle Uh, the hard issues that we face as a society society today. And I think that's going to be a huge asset for the uh, community of Long Beach.
0: And the stories that we're trying to tell are so important that we want everybody to be able to experience them. So Fari, I want you to say a word about the special effort that we made to make this aquarium accessible to people who are blind and deaf.
2: Yeah, um, that was very important to the aquarium, and I think, um, you know, part of that started when we met with this extraordinary woman, Haben Girma. Uh, She's a lawyer, accessibility accessibility rights lawyer, and Jerry met her at, uh, I think, an award ceremony. And she's just a phenomenal woman. We met with her in San Francisco. And uh, we just got to find out a lot more about the type of technology out there to make um, just the world and museums more accessible to people who are blind and deaf. And we wanted to incorporate some of that into Pacific Visions. Um, so we, we started at some you know, kind of grassroots level in terms of uh, simple things that we could do with our exhibits. For example, in the art gallery, we have a touch coral wall. So people who are blind can touch it and feel textures and depth of corals, um, so they can get an experience of their own um, in terms of art. And uh, then we went um, a little bit further, and we contacted a company called Ultra Haptics. And what they do is they, um, they focus on mid-haptic experiences. So that essentially means, uh, for example, for this theater, we have the set of five arrays and has 250 speakers on it, ultrasonic speakers. And when they all go on, they create a pressure point on the palm. And through those pressure points, you can get all kinds of different feelings on the palm, it could be, um, you know, the movement of something. It could even, you could even feel the shape of an object with that type of technology. And so we started working with ultra haptics. We had several user studies with people who are deaf and blind. And we connected that haptic experience with the script in the film, so that people who are blind and deaf who might not be seeing it or hearing it can get a different sensory experience uh, by using that particular array. And um, you know from the user studies that we did, we found you know it's just amazing seeing the faces on everyone when they experience it, and then they connect it to the film, and they said that it after getting that experience, it all connected for them. Um, so, and they were just so happy that we were taking that step forward in terms of accessibility.
0: And we will continue to do more of that. We have to keep in mind always though, so that we are an aquarium. Most people don't come to aquariums to learn. They come to have fun, to explore. But if we don't take ourselves too seriously, we can do serious things. We just can't take ourselves too seriously. There's
1: no risk of that with you, Jerry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> John Fraser, who has a company called New Knowledge, they do surveys of the public, the general public, and they've surveyed thousands of people and they ask them, when it comes to the ocean and marine life, who do you trust the most? And they had on their list academic scientists, government scientists, elected and appointed officials, uh, non-governmental organizations, aquariums. And aquariums won hands down. To me, that means we have both an opportunity and a responsibility to get the science right and to deliver that to our people, as I said earlier, in ways that engage, entertain, educate, and empower. And that means to do that, we have to have partnerships like the ones we have with you. I think what we will do now is show the film. It'll take about two minutes to get these chairs off. After the film is shown, we will have just a few minutes if you have any questions that you would like to ask any of our panelists. And then we will go into the culmination gallery. Thank you all for your attention. For a few questions from the audience, and if you have a question, raise your hand, and a microphone will be brought to you because we're streaming this live, and the only way that people watching remotely will be able to hear you is if you have a microphone in front of you. Who has the first one? Somebody must have a question or a comment. Yes, write down. I Bob, I knew we could count on you. <laughs> it wouldn't be an event. <laughs> We got one of, oh, okay, good. Good evening. Avalon, yes. Hi.
2: Could um, one of you comment on, I know this is going to be a performing arts venue sometimes. Could you comment on the synergy between performance art and the science we've been talking about tonight?
0: I will start and then I'll let others add. We're strong believers of the integration of the art and the arts and the sciences. I think they're both ways of knowing, and so over the years, we have commissioned performances by the Long Beach Ballet, the Long Beach Opera, the Symphony, and uh, we've, we've had Balabolis Dance Group here. Art and science together can convey messages in more powerful forms, I think, than art, than science can alone, or or than art. And and so that's why we started this experience with an art gallery. Art, for most of us, makes stronger emotional connections with the world and what's happening. Than science does. Who else would like to add to the
3: integration of arts and sciences? And I think that's, you know, all the techniques that we've used to create, you know, every piece of this exhibit is is the collaboration of art and science. And so those tools are inseparable.
0: And and Avalon, you know, that guy sitting next to you, (laughs) he's been part of this aquarium since before it started and has been a big factor in what it has evolved in. So, Russ, I hope you're happy. We have one over here.
3: Well, ladies and gentlemen, what are you gonna do for us next week? (laughs) I love the point you brought out about the friction that goes on in the creative process. Uh, So many politicians think it's a negative thing, but in the world of science and ideas, it's a positive thing. And that's a, that's a good thing to bring out. That's a good experience for us all to, to see happen and be aware of. Science progresses by people challenging
0: each other. And there's nothing that makes a scientist happier than proving another scientist wrong. That's right? for sure. Right.
1: I've done it at least nine times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, who has one? OK, way up there.
2: I've always felt that art and entertainment when combined with education can make a powerful impact. And I just want to say that you guys um, have hit an incredible home run. And I want to thank you for following your dreams and your vision. And um, it's we're so grateful and thankful to have this in our backyard. It's incredible and I just wish that this backdrop was in my bedroom or <laughs> the ocean so I think it would be a phenomenal venue for sleepovers that you might consider in the future because it would be an opportunity of <laughs> thank, you. thank
0: you yes
1: yes I'm very appreciative of the recent expansion but I'm curious to find out if you have in your dreams for the future expansion of additional uh, tanks and more marine life, we, and how far off might that buy, might that be?
0: We, we do. Not very far off. Uh, once we get this open to the public on May 24th, we'll take a little breather, and then we're going to start on what's going to be next. And, and it will be a live animal exhibit. But I would remind you, many of the, the animals that are too big to have in captivity or too small to see with the naked eye, play these important roles in the ocean you can only do that with media and if you want to watch normal how animals behave in the in the wild media is very powerful so it's the combination of live animals and and media Peter what would you say you're in a, you study animals
1: <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's especially true you know the, the big things that are going on in the oceans that are responsible for that report you talked about yeah are the elimination of the top predators, which are very hard to bring in captivity. And then what's going on with the zooplankton, and which is doing all the production, and all the production and taking up of carbon. And those, neither of those lend themselves to an aquarium. But that, the top predators, the sharks, you know, the orcas, and the plankton are why people write the reports that Jerry referred to, and you can't capture those in a live exhibit. So they need to be part of the story. So
0: if you remember in the art gallery, it focuses on plankton, the base of the food chain, and it focuses on on coral reefs, which is one of the ecosystems that is under great distress. We've lost something like 25 to 30% of all coral reefs, and many coral reef biologists predict we could lose all of our coral reefs before the end of the century.
2: Oh, we're not yeah. going to.
0: We're not going to. No. <laughs> if we follow the prescription that we've developed, that won't happen. Okay, Another, any other questions? Yes, up, up. Oh, and there's the guy sitting next to you also. He was <laughs> up from the very beginning with this aquarium. Take, take a, a microphone. Where's the microphone? All oh, we have one time. way up there first, okay.
2: Um, so managing a large project like this is, is a huge responsibility, and I have a question for Faria. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you tell us about one of the challenges you faced managing this expansion and how your expertise pushed the project forward? Uh, You know, we had, um, we faced a few challenges throughout the project. I mean, the project's been going on for a while, but, you know, we always overcome them. And I think it's just because everybody worked very well together. Everybody was very respectful of one another, but I think everybody was able to be able to give their opinions. But um, but at the end, you know, similar with the scientists, everybody came to a consensus. And I think that was always the case with us, too. And just in general, I think we worked with great consultants and great contractors. I think we were very lucky um, in this project to be able to work with Cortina and EHDD and Clark Construction and the many other um, you know, consultants and contractors. Um, you know, for many of them, we'd gone through RFP processes. We saw their experience. Uh, some of them we've worked with in the past, so we knew we got along. And um, it just, I think everybody had the same vision for Pacific Visions, and that's really what, you know, made us work together. But
0: I think patience, constancy of commitment, and a sense of humor on your part. And you know, there are are people in the world that make little problems into big problems, and there are people that make big problems into little problems, (laughs) and you made big problems into little problems by dealing with them in real time before they exploded. Go ahead, Joe. I
3: was just going to say one uh, actual practical example of that is we uh, got help from a company called Managing Resources that they look at flow and uh, people flow and how you do, mm-hmm. you know don't create bottlenecks and things and so one of the things that we they were concerned about is the audience of 300 on a busy day will be entering the uh, next gallery 300 people at a time every 15 minutes so then you know within you know a half hour that place will be packed so can we do anything with, experientially to help with that so we created a video wall with a current that goes that way and the bubbles go that way and all the interactivity goes the direction that we want you to go. So if you play with that wall for a few minutes, you're halfway through the gallery. So we had to create flows to try to make it work. So the, for flow.
2: Um, Yes. Uh, Over the next many years, many, many People will come to see this incredible exhibit, this incredible facility that you have all helped to design and build and create. What is the one thing that each of you hope will be a takeaway that a child, an adult, a visitor leaves this place thinking or feeling?
0: Peter, what would you say to that?
1: Do something. Do something, yeah. And you can.
0: A I, I think that, that's, a, that's a good, good point. The, uh, it's interesting that there's a very well-known deep-sea biologist at Duke University, and she was quoted in Science Magazine a few weeks ago. A, a permit, a very limited permit, was issued to mine deep-sea nodules. And instead of wringing her hands and crying that we're destroying the ocean, she said, Hooray. We need to do stuff to find out how to solve these problems. And the reason is that these deep sea uh, manganese modules are rich in the materials that we use in our cell phones. And the only place they're being mined right now is in China, destroying the landscape. If we're willing to give up all of our cell phones and our telecommunications, maybe we don't need to do that. We need to look for different solutions. What, what, what takeaway do you want?
3: Well, I, I think we had a couple of audience members who saw the show yesterday, and what they they responded when asked what they thought, what, their impression when they're leaving, and they gave you know the answer that we were we really hoped for was that the uh, there's things out there that could solve the problems that we have, and it's just you know the will, our will to do it, and so I think it really left them with the message of. Um, that science and um, creativity combined could create a, a wonderful world. Faria, you, you have a—how old's your daughter?
2: My daughter is eight years old. Eight years old. Yeah. So
3: what's
0: the one thing you want people to take away?
2: I think I want people to take away that it's not, you know, a lot of the things we see on TV or in just movies out there about uh, the environments, all a lot of gloom and doom. And I want people here to leave feeling hopeful. Um, that there are solutions out there, and there are solutions in place right now. We just need to propel them forward. Um, so I want them to leave with that message and also feel very, feel empowered that they can do things too. Um, in the exhibits, you'll see that it's, not ch- it's about personal choices you make, and it's about things that you do as a community together to move forward. And um, you have to do both.
1: You know, there's that beautiful, in the movie, that just line, of uh, open mind. Right.
0: Duncan, what would you add?
4: Well, I think uh, aquariums uh, are a great opportunity to um, expose people to uh, environments, to ecosystems, to the environment, species, flora and fauna, uh, that you wouldn't have the opportunity uh, to be exposed to. Not everybody can travel around the world, can go to... The great coral reef, or other things, but I think through a, a place like the L- Long Beach Aquarium, um, it allows you to make those connections to under to understand a little bit more about the world that you live in, and I think that helps create empathy for some of these these issues that you can make start to make personal connections uh, to our to our planet, uh, to uh, instill curiosity um, uh, about about. Uh, these species and, and about uh, the ecosystems and, and how we need to value them and, and that they are they are worth saving. You know, even though I've seen a lot of these animals up close in the wild, don't you feel
1: something physiological when you see them in the screen? I mean, actually, it's not intellectual; something physiological here. I mean, I think when you see the whales, uh, you know, breaching, and there, there's a physical feeling
0: that it gives you. I think yes. Yeah, yeah. I think and that was, and, the <laughs> yeah, 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 was the butt and, kicker. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And free to that guy sitting t- to your right, Doug Otto. He also has been on our board since before we opened. And you know, there may be arguments for term limits, but there are also <laughs> our, there are also our arguments for having people long staying around a long time to to work to see a vision come true. If you look at this cities in this country who've had mayors that have been in office for 20, 30 years. Tommy Menino in Boston, or you look at the guy who is the mayor in Charleston, South Carolina, or Buddy Cianci in Providence. Even out Buddy. of the jail. Buddy Cianci did more good for Providence when he was in jail right. than, <laughs> than, than most, most mayors do walking the streets. So I hope you don't have to go to jail. <laughs> <But> <laughs> We've had a wonderful experience. All right, who has another one? We've got time for but one more. Somebody.
3: Thank you. I
1: still have my hard hat from walking when this was dirt. I petted it tonight. What you have done is frickin' awesome. It is so amazing. I will be bringing my little grandchildren and my great-grandchildren through this whole experience this summer. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Thank you. And I have to say that, as has been said before, this took an entire organization. We have the most remarkable staff I have ever had the privilege of working with, in terms of creativity, innovation, commitment, staying with something. So I thank all of them. And thank you all for being here. If you go up the stairs into the culmination gallery, several people will be there, and we can continue to address any questions that you have. Thank you very much.